Hi, this is Chris Sorensen. Welcome to Brookville Road Community Church Podcast. If you haven't done so already, please take a moment to check out our website at brookvilleroad.cc for all the latest information about what's going on at Community Church. I hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in becoming a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. This summer, our family, the Flink family, we are celebrating my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. And yeah, it's a pretty, pretty exciting time. And we're going to be getting together for this uh, special gathering. My brother and his family are coming up from Alabama. Of course, Becky and myself and our family will be there, my parents. And as part of like the festivities, one of the things that my mom did was she got out the last 25 years of Flink family calendars, right? And so we, we've got these here. It's 25 years of history. And, you know, there's like just you know, pictures of the family on the top and then... You know, like, sometimes it's one picture, maybe it's a collage. We've got individual birthdays and anniversaries. And my mom has been giving the calendars like this to my dad for Christmas, you know, for 25 years. And it's something that we all kind of look forward to and expect. And as we've been going through some of these old calendars, it's been fun. I, I've been showing them uh, to my, my children. Let's see, I've got one over here. Yeah, there's pictures uh, of, like, this started when I was in college and my brother was in high school. And so, like, I've been showing pictures like this to my, my, brother, my, my children of me and Mike. And, and they're like, that doesn't look like you, Daddy. Or Uncle Mike. I'm like, well, this is when I graduated from college and my brother was graduating from, from high school. But here's the thing. When we look at calendars like this, we normally, we're not looking at them for the purpose of, looking back and, and, and kind of reminiscing about old memories. Like we have scrapbooks for that, right? The purpose of a calendar, generally speaking, is like we want to remember things are, that are coming up. We want to schedule things for the future. And so like looking at a calendar like this, there's a you know, small group night and then uh, there's an a, a upcoming meeting. Uh, there's a Pacers game. Like they're just... That's what the purpose of a calendar is. It's to let you know about things that are coming up in the future. And, you know, a lot of them are just mundane things. But then there are things like, oh, you know, hey, we're going on family vacation. And that takes up like a whole week. And, you know, we're all looking forward to that. Now, I don't know about in your family if you have any traditions like this in terms of your family calendars. But in our family, when there's something really big like family vacation coming up, we, we do like a countdown. And we're crossing off days. And we're, we're just excited about the weeks and the days going by until we get to all be together for family vacation. And so uh, that, that countdown, though, we don't always like to wait Especially my children don't like to wait. Especially my four-year-old son, JP, he does not like to wait. And so the question that I'm always getting asked is like, how many more days till family vacation? And you know, it's fine. Just, oh, it's this many days. But it can be a little tough when it's like, well, it's the same answer I gave you at breakfast. You know, like uh, the first three times I told you how many days it is, you know. And, but the thing is, as much as it can sometimes be a little irritating to get the same question over and over again, I can relate to JP in the sense of, I don't like waiting for things either. I mean, when something is, is on the calendar that I'm really excited about, I, I don't want to wait for it. I, I just want it to be here right now, right? It's not easy to wait for things that are exciting and that we're looking forward to that have been scheduled on the calendar. But you know, as hard as it might be to wait for an event that has been scheduled on the calendar, I think the hardest events to wait for are the events that aren't scheduled on a calendar. 
And, and you got to think about this a little bit, but I want you to think about like those events that are something that you're really looking forward to and you're hoping that God's going to do in your life, but you don't know when it's going to happen. So you can't write it down. For that matter, you don't know if it's going to happen. I'll give you an example of this in my own life. This is the, the calendar from January of 1999. And here on Wednesday, January 6th, it says, Andy leaves 10 a.m. And, and I actually remember that day. I couldn't have told you what day it was, but I remember that day very clearly because I'm leaving on that day from Indianapolis International Airport for a study abroad program in China for a whole semester. And I, I remember that day because I was really upset on that day. I went, went through a real period of discouragement for about six months during that whole program. And the reason was because I was so excited that I had met this girl that I thought I was going to marry. But right before that day, that relationship had ended. And so I was in this place of feeling sad that the relationship had ended. But I also was like, God, I really want to get married but, but I don't know when that's going to happen. I don't know if that's going to happen. And, and, and here's the thing. It would have been so great if God could have just said, well, you know, on my calendar, I, I have it scheduled. Like, this is the Flink family calendar for March of 2002. And right there it says wedding on March 9th. And that was my wedding. That was the day Becky and I got married. I didn't know that in January of 99 that about three years later, God was going to answer my prayer, that God was going to bring Becky into my life. And this frustration and pain that I was experiencing here was going to be redeemed by this point in time. It would have been so much easier if God would have just showed me his calendar and I could have known, oh, this is what's coming. You just have to wait. But, but that's not how God works. That's not how God operates. We don't like waiting. It, it isn't easy. As the great American theologian and songwriter Tom Petty says, <laughs> the waiting is the hardest part, right? <laughs> Somebody likes Tom Petty. <laughs> I've got this calendar here, and we'll just call it God's calendar. And it's going to represent God's time, God's schedule, God's plan. And we wish we could see inside this calendar. And we wish we could know what was coming. A few years after Becky and I got married, we were really interested in having children. And we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we waited for many, many years. And it just didn't seem like it was going to happen. We didn't know when or if it was ever going to happen. And it would have been so great if God could have just said, it's coming. I've got these days circled, a day circled. You know, like that would have been so encouraging. But, but we didn't know that, you know, a day was coming like, this is this year's calendar, and there are five days circled on this calendar for our five children's birthdays, and, but God didn't show me that. I didn't know, and so I had to wait, and when we wait on God's calendar, it's tough. We have to trust God's character and that he knows what he's doing. But you know, here's the thing. It's a lot easier to just say, well, I trust God's character than it is to say, well, I trust God's calendar. We don't like waiting for things. We wish we could just kind of speed things up. And yet, paradoxically, even though we don't like waiting for things, I think that most of us as followers of Jesus, we just instinctively understand 
that actually something good can happen in our souls while we're waiting, right? That God can use that time while we're waiting to transform us. There's a relationship between waiting on God and our hearts being transformed. We might not like waiting, but it's a sign of maturity that we believe that God can do something good with our waiting. Although, if you're like me, there are certainly moments where as I keep waiting and keep waiting on God's calendar, I can start to have some questions. I can start to have some doubts. God, I do trust you, and I do believe in you, but like, do you care about what I'm going through? Are you paying attention to my concern right now? In a room of this size, I'm sure there are some people who are going through a season like that right now. Maybe you're asking questions. Maybe you're struggling with doubts. God, how long am I going to have to wait? Am I ever going to meet that special person? God, am, am I ever going to have a baby? Am I ever going to get that job? God, it might be written down in your calendar, but could you please tell me, is this long-term pain ever going to go away? God, are you ever going to heal my marriage? Like, we're asking. We pray and we pray and we pray and we wait and we wait and we wait. But God's calendar doesn't seem to line up with our calendar. You know, in the Bible, there's lots of stories of people who are waiting on God's calendar, on God's timing. Just think about the stories in the Old Testament. Abraham and Sarah are waiting to have a baby. Jacob is waiting to marry Rachel. Joseph is waiting to get out of prison. Noah is waiting for the floodwaters to recede. David is waiting between the time that Samuel anoints him to be the next king of Israel and when it actually happens. The children of Israel are waiting to enter the promised land. All of these people, their lives were formed and shaped and to some degree transformed during this process of waiting on God. And as we turn in our Bible passage today to 1 Kings chapter 18, we're going to see how this dynamic of waiting and how we need to trust God when we're waiting on his calendar, we're going to see how this dynamic plays out in the lives of one of the most amazing figures in the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah. Now, as you turn to 1 Kings 18, we're going to be looking at verse 21. But let me just set up this part of the story. The king of Israel, during this moment in Elijah's life, is Ahab. And King Ahab, if you read through the Bible, he is not a good guy. He is not a true follower of God. Actually, he has married a woman who is not an Israelite. Her name is Jezebel. And she is leading Ahab into worshiping some of the Canaanite gods, specifically the, the god of fertility, Baal. And as Ahab and Jezebel are, are going down this road of following Baal, they're leading all of Israel astray with them. And God doesn't like that. And so in 1 Kings 17, he actually sends Elijah to Ahab to tell him, I see what's happening. God sees what's happening. And there's not going to be any rain for a while because I, I need to get your attention. And so from the beginning of 1 Kings 17, when Elijah says there's not going to be any more rain, to the, the story that we're going to start picking up here in verse 21, it's been a period of about three years. And right before this moment, Elijah has gone to Ahab. 
And maybe there is some part of this conversation that's kind of like, hey, I don't know if you believe me the first time, but you know, it hasn't rained for three years. Maybe you'll pay attention now. I think it's time for a showdown to see who the true God of Israel is. Are we going to follow Baal? Or are we going to follow the God of Israel? So, so here's what I propose. Let's do a showdown on Mount, on Mount Carmel. You get the prophets of Baal, I'll show up, and, and, and we'll just have this little showdown to see who the true God of Israel really is. And Ahab agrees, which leads us up to verse 21, where Elijah is speaking, and he talks to the people of Israel, and he says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Israel needed a revival. That's what we need in our country today. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. What happens next is that the 450 prophets of Baal team up with the 400 prophets of Asherah, which is kind of, in the Canaanite religion, this was uh, a goddess, Asherah, and she was kind of a sexual partner of, of Baal. And so these 850 prophets there in the morning, they start kind of dancing around the altar of Baal, shouting to him to try to get his attention so that he will call down fire from heaven. And so they're doing that, and... Nothing really happens, and then it gets to lunchtime, and we get a sense that like, the, they're getting a little agitated. <clears throat> Elijah's kind of making fun of them. He's like, hey, maybe, maybe your God's on vacation. Maybe, maybe he just can't hear you, you know, a little bit louder. I, I, I understand that if you look into the Hebrew, like, there's an implication. Maybe your God's like in the bathroom, Right? So he's making fun of them, and this just sort of sets them into a frenzy. And so they're all screaming and shouting louder and dancing with more intensity, and they start taking out swords and spears and cutting their bodies until they're bleeding and the altar is bleeding and, like, all of this. They are giving it everything they have to try to get Baal's attention. But in verse 29 it says, But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And so now it's the evening, and now it's Elijah's turn. And so Elijah gathers all the people of Israel, like, and he says, I want you to see what I'm going to do. And so he rebuilds the altar for the God of Israel. And then he digs a trench around the altar, kills the bull, he puts it there on the altar. And then he has something really surprising. Very counterintuitive what you're looking for is for this altar to, you know, get lit up with fire. He asks the people of Israel to get water and to pour it on the altar, pour it on the sacrifice. And in fact, so much water that it not only soaks the sacrifice and soaks the altar, but it like actually all the water fills in that trench. And you know, we have some questions about this, right? Because this is in the middle of a drought. They're on Mount Carmel. Like, where did they get the water? Well, 
Apparently the people of Israel, they had just enough faith. That, well, we'll try this. They had the water, and so they do it. It's soaked. Elijah wants to make sure that there's no doubt how this happened. It wasn't him, it was God. Then he prays a simple prayer, and in then verse 38 we read, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, I just have to say, I'm not a prophet, I'm I'm a pastor, but I kind of feel like if I was in Elijah's shoes in that moment, his sandals in that moment, I'm feeling pretty good. I called my shot, fire, you know, we're going to have like fireworks shows tonight, but like nothing like God, you know, sending fire down from heaven. I prayed, the people responded, they repent, like it's such a fury of like, wow, God is real, God is the, the real God that we need to follow. They like kill all the prophets of Baal that's like on the spot. Like this is an intense moment. It is like you would think the high point of Elijah's entire ministry. But you know, as much as I love that story, it's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament because of just the, the way that it was so amazing for Elijah and it obviously showcases the power of God. But as amazing that, as that story is in the life of Elijah, I don't think we can fully appreciate what happens in 1 Kings 18 on in 1 Kings 18 on Mount Carmel unless we understand what happens during the 3 years of waiting leading up to that moment in 1 Kings chapter 17. And so what I what I actually want to do and I want to spend the majority of my time now going back to 1 Kings chapter 17. So we just flip back maybe a page or two in your, in your Bible. I want us to look at a story that we sort of described earlier, but we kind of skipped over kind of quickly. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 17, here's what happens. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. Now, in this moment, Elijah has showed a lot of faith going to confront Ahab. But now he faces a decision. Does he trust God to protect him, to take care of him, to provide for him? Because if we're just being honest, God's plan for taking care of Elijah's needs sounds kind of weird, right? Like, You're going to go to this place, and ravens are going to come bring you food. That's the plan. I I mean, that's kind of just gross. Like, I don't. Are they going to feed him like a baby bird? Like, what's going to happen? We don't know. And so Elijah's like, "Do I trust God to do that, or maybe like I have some friends in Israel? Maybe like they could just bake something for me. You know, I could hide with them. That sounds a little bit better." But Elijah's like, "No, I'm going to trust God." Now, here's the thing. Elijah, he can't see God's calendar. He doesn't know what's going to happen in three years. He doesn't know how long he's going to have to wait in the Kareth Ravine. He doesn't even know what's going to happen at the end of all of his waiting. Right? God knows that this story is going to end in triumph up on Mount Carmel. But for right now, 
Elijah just has to trust God's calendar as he goes down into the Kareth Ravine. But that's what he does. In verse 5 it says, So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now, as we read these words in verses 5 and 6, I want to talk about a concept that we, we, we talk about fairly often in the church world, and that is God's will and what it means to be in the center of God's will. Because I think we can all agree that in this moment, in this part of the story, Elijah is definitely in the center of God's will, right? God specifically told him to do something, and Elijah did exactly what he asked him to do. And if we needed any confirmation that, like, no, this is what God wants, and this is how God's providing, like, the ravens keep showing up every morning and every evening, right? So Elijah is in the center of God's will. But here's the thing. If you, if you grew up in the church world hearing about God's will, you might be familiar with a kind of saying that often is, is used in, in the church world about the center of God's will. People say things, and, and maybe you can finish this in your own mind. The center of God's will is the safest place to be. The safest place to be. But here's what I want you to think about. Is that really true? Like, in, in our lives, is God's will the safest place to be? Like, we could certainly agree that it's the right place to be. For the sake of our souls, you can be sure it's the best place to be. But is the center of God's will the safest place to be? I, I don't think so. I mean, just look what it says in verse 7. It doesn't seem like it's the safest place to be for Elijah. In verse 7, it says, Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And when we read that verse, there's a part of us that's just like, no, wait a minute. What's going on here? Why is Elijah in the Kareth Ravine in the first place? It's because God told him to go there. God said, you will drink from the brook. Those were God's words. But now, the brook has dried up. Sometime later, the brook has dried up. Now, Elijah is in trouble. And can you imagine, if you were Elijah, how you might be feeling about God? Hey, God, I don't understand. I did what you asked me to do. I took a big risk and I went to speak to King Ahab. He might have killed me on the spot, but I did it because you told me to. I had courage and I went and I confronted him. And then I came here. I trusted your whole plan with the birds and, and, and the brook. I, I did that because you told me to come here. And I said that I would wait, you know, until you had whatever was next for me. So God, I keep doing what you're asking me to do but like now it doesn't feel like you're holding up your end of the bargain. The brook has dried up. Have you ever felt like Elijah? Maybe it seems crass or a little bit harsh to talk about like God not holding up his end of the bargain. Maybe you wouldn't use language like that. But in your soul, isn't there something in you that sort of feels like there's an implicit understanding a little bit of an agreement between you and God. God, 
I will do all the things you have asked me to do. And in return, I can't demand this, but in return, I would really appreciate if you would take care of me, take care of my family. And I did all those things. But now, sometime later, the brook has dried up. Some of you, as you look at your life, it feels like the brook has dried up. Your source of hope, your source of provision has dried up and it's getting drier every day. And when you're in a place like that, you can start to wonder. Like, I know God knows, but does God care? Is God really paying attention to me? The brook is drying up. And why would God ask me to go to this place? Why would God ask me to wait if that's what was going to happen? It's in times like that where we can't understand his plans and we can't understand his calendar that we're just like, what What do I do now? At the bottom of the Kareth Ravine, Elijah was experiencing something that so many of us have experienced in our own lives. He was experiencing what we might call spiritual spatial disorientation. And I know that's kind of a mouthful. And if you haven't been here the last couple weeks, it might not make sense, but let me explain what I'm talking about. We've been in this series called Preparing for Takeoff. And during this series, we've been talking about a challenge that pilots face as they're flying their planes called spatial disorientation. Spatial disorientation is what happens when what a pilot sees and feels doesn't actually match up with what's really happening in reality. Spatial disorientation is caused by a discrepancy between our inner ear or the vestibular system and our eyes. And when those two, you know, our visual system and our vestibular system are in conflict with each other, it can lead to the pilot having illusions and a sense that something is happening that is not actually happening. They can feel like their plane is banking or going up or down when actually they're flying straight and level or vice versa. Now, to compensate for spatial disorientation, planes are equipped with electronic instrument panels, which are designed to give the pilot more accurate readings of what is happening in the plane and are more reliable than their own feelings and intuition. In flight school, pilots are trained that as they fly, they are told, trust your instruments, not your feelings. Now, of course, learning to place more confidence in, our, in a plane's instruments than one's own intuitive senses requires training and practice. And the same thing is true in the Christian life. These last two weeks, we've talked about, <clears throat> talked about the fact that there's a kind of parallel to spatial disorientation in the spiritual life. As followers of Jesus, we go through these moments where what we're seeing and feeling and experiencing doesn't seem to match up with what we believe and what we know about God from his word. There are moments where as we're flying the plane that is our life, what we believe about God and what we're seeing all around us, it just doesn't match up. Fortunately, as followers of Jesus, God has given us an instrument panel, as it were, that we can put our trust in. Part of that instrument panel includes the fact that God has given us his word. He's given us the Bible and he's given us his Holy Spirit so we can understand his word. So as we're living the Christian life, when things are happening and we, we see what's going on, you know, we have a standard that we can be called back to. 
We, we know what God says. We know what God thinks. And so we need to trust God's word and not our feelings. But of course, having said that, there are times where we're in a situation where it just feels overwhelming. Everybody else is going a certain way. And it can kind of lead to this impression like, why am I not going that way? That seems normal. Not what I'm doing, even if it matches up with God's word. Maybe I should reconsider. And it's in those moments that we were talking about this last week. Samson desperately needed some godly friends. We need God's people to encourage us. We need community. We need relationships. So people who can come alongside us and say, hey, look, I know what they're doing, but let's, let's not do that. Let's do what God says. Let's do what God's word is telling us to do. Jesus says, where two or three come together in my name, there am I in their midst. And so we've got God's word and we've got, been given God's people and that's part of the instrument panel. But, you know, here's the thing for pilots. It isn't just that they have an instrument panel on like the dashboard of their cockpit as they're flying the plane. There's also, as they're wearing that headset, there's a voice in their head. It's telling them about like what's going on. Air traffic controllers are speaking to them. The air traffic controller can see their plane, but not just their plane. They have radar, and they can see a much bigger picture. They can see what's going on around the pilot. They can see weather patterns that are coming in. They can see bigger planes that are flying that, you know, like, might, like, affect your flight. But here's the thing. If you're a pilot and you're listening to that voice... You probably don't know that air traffic controller personally. And so you're, you're, in a sense, trusting that they know what they're talking about. You're, you're trusting their character, that they're a good person, and that they want what's best for you and all the other pilots. You're trusting their character. You're trusting their competency, that they, they know what to do, that they can see what's on the flight plan and understand it better than, than you can with your limited perspective. This week, as I was researching a little bit about air traffic controllers, I found that some pilots refer to air traffic controllers as the god of the tower, right? Because they tell everybody what's what and what's going on. And I was thinking that that's such a good analogy for us as we're living the Christian life. Because we have the god of the universe who sees all of our, as it were, flights, Everywhere on the planet, all at the same time, and not just the ones that are happening right now. He's got a plan for the ones that have come before us and the ones that are coming after us. God sees it all. We have a very limited perspective, but but we have to make a choice. Do we trust God's character? Do we trust his competency? That's something we have to do. We have to trust God's character and trust that he knows what he's doing, not our own feelings, even when things are tough. And I think that that was true of Elijah. He kept following God's path even when he didn't understand God's plan. And we need to do that. See, part of trusting God's character is trusting God's calendar. God's timing isn't our timing, and that can be hard for us. We are so excited about the promises of God But we don't want to go through the process that God has for us. We want the promise, but we don't want the process. And so when we're in situations like that, 
We just have to remind ourselves of his faithfulness. I mean, that, that's part of, like, when you look back at 25 years, you're just like, you remember, oh, yeah, he's been faithful in the past. He's got a good track record. I can trust his character. I can trust his competency. I can trust his calendar. Right now, some of you are going through a season just like Elijah. You feel like God has led you to a brook, but now the brook is starting to dry up. And quite understandably, you are struggling to understand what's going on. Hey, God, what's the deal? You told me to come here, and now the brook has dried up. I thought you told me to marry her, marry him. God, I thought you told us to move into that new house. God, I thought you told us to take that new job. I I thought you showed me that it was somehow going to be better than the old job and that there was a path for advancement or or, or something. But God, it's been months, and nothing's happening. It seems a lot worse than the old job. The brook is drying up. God, I had an opportunity to go on a date with that guy or with that girl, but I turned it down because I thought you told me that you had something better for me. But it's been over a year now, and nobody else has asked me out on a date. There hasn't been another opportunity for me to go out with someone. God, I thought I was supposed to do this, or God, I thought I was supposed to do that. Because you told me. But now look at my life. The brook is starting to dry up. But you know, sometimes God lets the brook dry up before he makes a way. And as the story of Elijah shows us, even when God does make a way, it's usually not the way we thought he was going to make. We're not going to read the rest of 1 Kings 17, but God sends Elijah not to a Jewish widow in Israel. He sends Elijah to a Gentile widow living in Sidon. And when Elijah gets there, this woman seems to be even worse off than him. Like she has a young son, and she's like, we got one meal left, and then we're going to die, right? Why, God, why did you send me to her? And, and, and to make it even more difficult, he goes to Sidon. Do you know who the king of Sidon is? It's Jezebel's dad. Right? This is not like, hey, God, how about sending me to a Jewish widow? And wouldn't it be great if she like, just owned a grocery store? Like lots of food, no problems. No, but that's not what God does. He sends him to a Gentile widow living in Sidon. And God makes a way. He provides for Elijah and he provides for that widow and for her son. It didn't make sense. But Elijah obeyed, and God made a way. Because that's what God does. This morning, we're going to end the service by receiving communion. And as we do this together, once again, I know that there are people here who feel a lot like Elijah. You feel like you're in the Kareth Ravine, and your brook is drying up. I know that it isn't easy. You're waiting on your heavenly father right now and you can't see what he's doing. God knows in his calendar, he's got a date circled when you're gonna get to your Mount Carmel, but but you don't know. 
And it's hard to wait and wait. And it would be so much easier if God would just like pull the pages back and just show us what's going to happen. But that's not usually how God operates. For those of you who are in that place right now, I just want you to know, you are not alone. Jesus knows exactly how you feel. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was in the center of God's will, but it did not feel safe to him. He cried out to his Father, and you can cry out to your Heavenly Father too. God can handle your frustration, your confusion, your disappointment, your anger, your fear. When we come together and worship, God can handle our positive emotions as we rejoice in who he is. But he can also, if you read through the Psalms of David, there are moments where he is so, so disappointed, so frustrated, so angry. God can handle our negative emotions. You can pray honestly. Hebrews 2.18 says, of Jesus, because he himself suffered while being tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus was tempted not to go on God's calendar, but to go his own way. That's the temptation in the wilderness when Satan comes to him. In a sense, that's the temptation he experiences in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet, even though he was tempted to reject God's calendar and go his own way, Jesus gives us a model for trusting God's character and not his own feelings, when he cries out to his father, if it is possible, may this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. Not my will, but thine be done. Are those words that you need to share with God in prayer this morning? What are you waiting on? Is it a relationship or a spouse Is it a career? Is it a calling? Is it a circle of friends that can come around side you and encourage you and you can encourage them? Is it a physical or an emotional healing? Are you praying and waiting for a baby? Or maybe you're praying for a child or for a grandchild that has left the faith and you're waiting for them to return to the Lord. Maybe you're waiting for your finances to turn around. I don't know what you're waiting for right now. But would you be willing today, to follow Jesus's example and just say, God, this is what I would like to happen. And yet, not my will, but thine be done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for how faithful you are and that you make a way even when it seems like there is no way. And God, I pray that you would give us the strength to be able to trust your calendar even when it doesn't make sense to us. For those who are waiting right now in this room, people who don't know what to do and don't know what the next step is and they don't know how long they're gonna be in this place of waiting and they'd like to be up on Mount Carmel celebrating your glory as you answer with fire from heaven. But right now, they feel kind of alone down in the Kareth Ravine where it seems like their brook is drying up. Lord, for my brothers and sisters who are in this place and watching online who feel that way, God, I just pray that you would encourage them. And I pray that you would give them the strength to follow the example of your son, that they would pour out their hearts as openly and honestly as they possibly can. And yet at the end of all that, they would be able to say, truthfully, not my will, but thine be done. 
Thank you, Father. Amen. Now, in a moment, I'm going to invite you to take communion. But before I do that, I'm going to read the passage that goes along with communion. If you did not receive a communion cup when you came in, if you'll just slip up your hands, uh, we'll have some ushers get those communion cups to you. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. As we get ready to receive communion, I just want you to know that here at Community Church, you do not have to be a member of this church body to receive communion, just a member of the body of Christ. Parents, I I know that we have quite a few children in the room today because we don't have elementary joy land. And I just want you to know that we believe that as the spiritual leaders of your home, it is up to you to discern whether or not your child is ready to receive communion. Today, I want to encourage you to take some time to pray and reflect. And when you're ready, take the bread, take the juice. But as you do, I hope that you will remember that what we are celebrating, what Jesus accomplished, is a sacrifice that Jesus made It was all about waiting. Because just like Elijah, Jesus had to wait on his heavenly father. He didn't have to wait three years in the Kareth Ravine. He had to wait three days in the tomb. For those three days on our human calendars, it seemed like all had been lost. And the whole earth was waiting. But on Easter Sunday, God's calendar, you can be sure that that was circled in red. Because that was the day of resurrection. And when we think about the stories in this book, it's kind of like all these calendars here. This is God's history. And when we look at God's track record, we can trust his character. And because we can trust his character, we can trust his calendar. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love for you to join us at one of our weekend worship services. For service times and information about BRCC, be sure to check out brookvilleroad.cc. God bless you.